The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. With Colour Trend Paint on News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Home Show podcast. I'm Sinead Ryan. Coming up on this edition. Well, unless you've been living under a rock, you can't have missed that the coronation is happening across the water. And we'll be chatting to a historian about the billions worth of property now owned by the king. Landscaper Dermot Gavin brings us up to date on his magnificent coronation garden. Wicklow furniture maker Brendan Lawless on designing a boat chair based on an original design from the 1830s and interior designer Natasha Rockerdevine on blinging up your home. You can get involved in the podcast by emailing us to thehomeshow at newstalk.com and of course you can listen on a Saturday morning on the radio from 8 till 9am and of course all our podcasts are up on the Newstalk website or on the Newstalk app which is powered by Go Loud. Now, whatever your views about kings and queens and the whole question of monarchy, which all seems a little bit silly in this day and age, you can't have missed that this weekend is a big event in the British calendar as the first new monarch in 70 years is crowned. There's bank holidays, concerts, street parties, gold carriages, orbs, not to mention a coronation quiche and the chance to pull your tiara out of the family vaults. Now, whether you be glued to the telly or just have a passing interest, it can't be ignored. So we have a few guests on the show this week, including our own Dermot Gavin, who's been busy building a coronation garden up north, complete with a massive crown and spinning trees and all sorts. He'd be telling me all about it. I'm not sure it's something that we will be replicating uh, this summer in our own back gardens. But first, now ahead of the coronation of King Charles and Queen Camilla this morning, we thought we'd take a look at just what property the new king is acquiring or inheriting as a result of his elevation to the British throne. And here to talk us through the extensive castles, palaces and grand homes in the Crown's collection is historian, author and joint chief curator for Historic Royal Palaces, Dr Tracy Borman. Tracy, you're very welcome to The Home Show. Hi, Sinead. It's lovely to talk to you. Now, when most of us have a parent who passes away, we might be lucky enough to get maybe the family home or a portion of it. Things are different with the monarchy. Yes, they are a bit different. They stand to inherit quite a few different (laughs) homes and lots of land. And of course, all the bling, the crown jewels, the, um, the other jewels within the collection, not to mention the royal collection itself, which has hundreds of thousands of items. So, yeah, it's it's a bit different to the usual inheritance. Uh, and <laughs> really, yeah, c- quite a nice thing to come into, although obviously it comes with a bit of responsibility as well. Indeed, and rules around it. So let's start with the Crown Estate, because, I mean, look, I mean, we say King Charles is the, is the head of all of this stuff, but it doesn't mean he personally owns it. He can't stick it up in Airbnb or sell it. No. You know, so the Crown Estate are a selection of properties from which Crown through the government gets its income and gets a kind of stipend that it can use off a huge array of hotels and um, other buildings and offices and all of that kind of thing. But in terms of the properties that the King and Queen now have under their wing, if you like. What kind of things are we talking about? So, um, of course, there are the, the iconic palaces that we know about, the um, the occupied palaces, uh, which are, of course, the likes of Windsor Castle, Buckingham Palace. Um, and they extend also, though, to 
the unoccupied royal palaces. And that's where I work at historic royal palaces. And uh, they include things like the, you know, the Tower of London and, and Hampton Court, Kensington Palace, although half of that is occupied. But then it goes beyond that to, to land uh, different buildings, not just palaces, you know, office buildings and all. It's a vast estate uh, that is the, the crown estate. Um, now, it doesn't mean that, that the new king can just you know, turn up and, and live in any of that or, or sell it or make it an Airbnb or whatever it might be. But, <laughs> but um, it does mean that, that he has the sort of titular head, um, headship, really, of that vast estate. It was different throughout history when, you know, monarchs really could just take whatever they wanted from their vast estate. I mean, Henry VIII had 60 palaces built uh, and regularly stayed in all of mm. them. So it was a very kind of itinerant court, always on the move between palaces. Mm. Uh, and I, I guess, you know, to an extent, it's it's still like that today, but on a much, much smaller scale. Yeah. And indeed, Hampton Court, where I know you're based yourself, uh, yeah. is, I mean, that was kind of Henry's party palace, really, wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> it's a great way of putting it, because absolutely, Henry came here to have fun. He had a bowling alley and a, a tilt yard and, of course, a vast, great hall that he built for entertainment. And so, uh, yeah, this, this really was the age, uh, the, the Tudor period of the Pleasure Palace. They no longer had to build sort of fortified castles for defence. It was a more peaceful time. And so you get the, the kind of development of royal palaces rather than, you know, castles such as the Tower of London, for example, mm. which was built by William the Conqueror very much to uh, defend himself and his family and the Norman regime. And I suppose the Thames River would have provided the pathway, if you like, yes. for uh, a lot of the situation of those palaces and structures, because that's yes. how they got around and the royal barges and, you know, flotillas yes. and all that kind of thing. Um, in terms of then the current situation, and I suppose since Queen Victoria's time, Buckingham Palace is seen as the, the kind of home of and the palace of the current monarch. But Charles and Camilla don't live there. Do you, do you know if they have plans to? Buckingham Palace really became a royal residence back in the reign of King George III, better known as the sort of Mad King, mm. uh, who um, acquired it. It was a private house. Uh, he acquired it, but it was really his son, George IV, who was a very decadent individual, who transformed it into the palace that we recognise today. And it has remained the principal residence of the monarch ever since. Queen Victoria actually didn't want to move there uh, really. Um, it's it's kind of notoriously cold and quite uncomfortable, apparently. Um, and uh, But there, there was this need to be in the symbolic kind of heartland of the monarchy. And, and so it has remained to this day. But yeah, it, it, it remains to be seen whether it will continue in that role as sort of monarchy HQ. Mm, because, I mean, arguably, it's such a vast place and they get lots and lots of visitors and there's a good income then uh, from uh, opening up either where you, Hampton Court or the Tower of London or Buckingham Palace to the public and maybe, and maybe you know, getting a few bob yeah. uh, for that uh, while they stay maybe somewhere else and just work it like a monument, I suppose. In terms yes. of, of some of the other residences, Balmoral and Sandringham and Clarence House, are they, are, do they feel feature they're they're private they seem to just move season by season between them yeah yeah they do and and that's a very well established uh pattern in that uh, as i say you know in in times past it was 
a court forever on the move. Now, that was more for reasons of practicality in the past, in that mm. after spending two or three months in a palace, this vast court, which comprised up to a thousand people, would have exhausted all the food supplies. Certainly the toilets would need cleaning out and, and so on and so forth. So they had to move on. Well, of course, it's not quite the same uh, today. But, but I think that at the heart of the monarchy and its itinerant nature is the need to be seen, to be visible. That's absolutely critical mm. for any king and queen uh, to engage with your people. So you can't just stay in one place and stay in London and pretend that that's the centre of your universe. You, you have to travel around and be you know, representative of, of all parts of the British Isles. Indeed, and wasn't a Queen Victoria who said, I have to be seen to be believed. Um, yes. in, in a time before the internet, maybe before newspapers and magazines yeah. and all that kind of thing. Um, now, of course, you, you mentioned there the retinue that come with a court and you know, maybe in Tudor times or Victorian times, you're, you were looking at hundreds or thousand people, maybe. Uh, it is less now, but at the same time, places like Kensington Palace have these, it seems like just a, a kind of rabbit warren of grace and favour, cottages and homes and apartments within the complex. It it seems very like vast. And, and I think one of the one of the royals called it the aunt heap, you know, because yes, they of, did. The, they did. I love that. Phrase. Cousins and the aunts and everything hold yeah. up. What, what's the like? Was that always the case in history that that kind of favoured dukes and earls got kind of free homes? No, not so much. I mean, or or at least not in one place like that. They tended to inherit their own estate more and they would live away from court. They would visit court and spend time there, but they would have their own kind of country pile, if you like. But uh, it was really Victoria who established Kensington in particular as, as yeah, the, the aunt heap, wonderful phrase, where where the, the, the members of her family, and of course she had many members of her family because she had nine children and and within her lifetime 42 grandchildren and 87 great-grandchildren so they they needed homes and a lot of them ended up at Kensington Palace and and, and it's really retained that role ever mm. since although we have had you know very senior royals and continue to do staying there as well as the uh the, the sort of the more distant relations, should we say. Indeed. And of course, King Charles now has promised a much slimmed down version of that. Yeah. So everybody will be holding on to the furniture and making sure yeah. that they're, <laughs> they're not turfed out uh, of it. So um, in terms of then, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about where the monarchy is going and its purpose and how much it all costs and all of that. And there certainly seems no appetite within the UK um, to do away with it or change it or dispense it. But, uh, you know, it has been something that has changed over the centuries and it's gone from yeah. this power base where I, I presume the monarch was just the like a deity nearly to yeah. very much a ceremonial role. Isn't that right? Yeah, oh, it is. It is. It's, and it's a constitutional monarchy. Monarchs no longer rule. They they reign. Uh, in, as you say, it's a ceremonial um, position. But that said, you know, they, they still um, have a role to play. And particularly in terms of, you know, advocacy, charitable work. The late Queen was patron of more than 600 charities. And we know it made a huge difference to their income. Mm. Um, and in other ways, you know, the crown is intrinsic to to British life, really. Um, you, you know, there's a state opening of parliament, the 
the Royal Arms that you see everywhere from post boxes to uh, beefeater uniforms in the Tower of London, it's, it's kind of ingrained. And for me as a historian, it's a symbol of continuity, something that has remained for well over a thousand years. Mm. And, the, and the coronation that we'll be seeing on Saturday, it's startlingly similar to the one that we have the first record of in the year 973. So if nothing else, regardless of your views on the monarchy, uh, as a piece of history, it's pretty hard to beat. Indeed. Uh, indeed. And you have written about it extensively, of course, in your very many books and uh, your new one coming up. Tell us a little bit. You're yeah. going back in history for this one to a fascinating character or two. Yes. Two fascinating characters. In fact, probably two of my favourite women in history. So, yes, my new book is Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, uh, the mother and daughter who changed history. And it's commonly assumed that Elizabeth didn't really think anything of her mother um, because for good reason. She was less than three years old when Anne Boleyn was executed on Henry VIII's orders. But actually, it left a profound mark on Elizabeth, who would spend the rest of her life trying to rehabilitate the reputation of this woman, who was known as the scandal of Christendom, the, the concubine. Uh, she was the woman who usurped the rightful Queen Catherine of Aragon and bewitched Henry VIII into falling in love with her and, mm. and it all went horribly wrong. But actually, Elizabeth kind of learned the truth pretty quickly of how unjust her mother's fate had been and she wanted to set the record straight. So that's what this book is all about. The, the mother-daughter relationship, uh, brief though it was, but then the influence that had um, mm. on Elizabeth for the rest of her life. And you are doing a, a tour uh, in the UK uh, during the year uh, called How to Be a Good Monarch. What tips would you have for the new King Charles, Tracy? Oh, gosh, yes, exactly. So I've, I have many tips, but um, I think that the top tip is one that we've sort of mentioned already. And, and it's put on a good show because it was said in the reign of Queen Victoria that you know, people want the gilding for their money when it comes to the monarchy. They want to see something impressive. And, you know, hopefully that will be the case uh, on Saturday. But there is this sense, as we were talking about with the palaces, just needing to be visible as well mm. to your people. Uh, you can't just stay behind the, uh, the closed doors of Buckingham Palace or wherever it is. You need to get out there and be seen. And that's something that I think Elizabeth I did better than anyone. She made a royal progress, the stuff of legends. And so, yeah, uh, current and future monarchs would be well advised to, to look back at her example. Get out there among your subjects. All right. Well, Tracy Borman, if anybody wants to uh, look at Tracy's books or uh, check out uh, more about uh, the historic royal palaces, you can do it on that website or, of course, on tracyborman.co.uk. And Tracy, have, have a lovely weekend, wonderful weekend and get ready Thank for you. all the new visitors that will come, I'm sure, as a result of the Carolean uh, era that is about to start this weekend. <laughs> And we are staying with that theme of the weekend that is in it uh, because my next guest, Dermot Gavin, has been very busy since we last spoke, uh, creating the Coronation Garden in Newton Abbey in County Antrim. Uh, Dermot, you're very welcome back to the home show. You've been a busy bee. It's been busy. All right. I've been up here for about 10 weeks uh, creating this garden and it's great to... See it up and open. <laughs> up and up. It is an extraordinary structure. Now, you promised us when you were last in studio that it would be finished 
by today. Uh, have you made it? We have made it. Uh, <laughs> okay. we, we, we have. The final planting has been done. All the electronics are plugged in. The structure is built. And uh, we, we have made it. Mind you, mind you, we're going to add to it. So as soon as uh, the celebrations for the coronation are over this weekend, it's closing down. It's been a cool kind of few months. And the meadow is just establishing. So we've done a lot of real gardening here with native Irish wildflower seed. Uh, we're going to give that a time to establish and we're adding a new garden onto it. Uh, so really the end of the month will be the proper opening when all the, all, all, all singing, all dance. Right. Now this is a permanent garden, a permanent structure. Describe it to listeners who haven't seen and actually by the way anybody who is listening and has their phone with them can have a quick look at Dermot's Garden on Dermot I presume it's on your uh, Dermot Gavin Instagram all the, all at, the changes at Dermot Gavin at Dermot Gavin yeah. okay so describe yeah. it to us then while people are looking uh, up at that it's quite I thought it was quite Victorian in it, in look yeah. like a pavilion yeah. There's only one word for it. It's a pavilion. It's a multi-story, three-story pavilion. It's what you would imagine seeing in a park. Actually, the other reference point is, you know, the Capitol building in Washington with the big dome top? Indeed, yes. The proportions are very, very similar to to that. So it's a wedding cake tiered building with a dome on top, a crown on top of the dome, a huge glitter ball sitting inside <laughs> of the crown, a royal balcony, set within this garden that is full of topiaries, uh, bordered by a native meadow and then tons of perennials and grasses and bulbs and all that sort of thing. There's a circulation path, so you can walk around the, the whole thing. Spaces to stop because uh, every 15 minutes it puts on a show to Morecambe and Wise singing, bring me sunshine, the plants bob up and down and, uh, you know, the uh, bubbles are uh, spewed from underneath the royal balcony. All sorts of ridiculous, uh, whimsical stuff like that. And it sets, it's set in the most beautiful setting. So in Dublin, if people are familiar with Clontarf or Sandy, Ford, or Sandy Cove, uh, those sort of sea areas where there might be, you know, St. Anne's Park, that sort of mm-hmm. uh, environment, a coastal park on Belfast Lock, just outside Belfast, on the way to Carrickfergus, a glorious situation. It was a bowling green, and the mayor presented me with this bowling green and said, do you have any ideas? And luckily I did. <laughs> luckily you did, right. The spinning trees, the dancing topiary, it's kind of German cavern all over. Were they, pla- were they prepared for you? They, uh, you know, they've just been... Brilliant. So it's a, a, a local kind of workforce. All the metalwork, well, most of the metalwork was made in, 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 uh, locally. Some stuff came up from Dublin are four curved staircases that flew in by crane in the last few days and had to be millimeter perfect to get them mm. uh, into the slots because the two of them are internal uh, staircases. And, uh, they were last and blitz. Uh, yeah, they're, they're ready for us. The welcome we've had, the, the, uh, some guy from the council came down to see me the other day and he said, I don't know what you're doing up here, but it's the first project we've ever done that there's been no complaints about. Uh, and maybe it's because it's the crown. <laughs> in, 
part of uh, of um, uh, of Antrim. I don't know, but everybody is happy. Is on board with it. Now, what was the most complex part? Because I saw these um, structural steel elements being lifted into place and craned into place. And it struck me that I remember when the Royal Albert, I don't remember, I read about when the Royal Albert Hall was being built. The hardest part was getting the dome on top because, quite frankly, it was the first time they had kind of created a glass dome and they didn't know whether it was going to collapse or not. For you with this structure, there were so many moving parts, literally and figuratively. What was the hardest bit? The hardest bit was building the team at the very start and telling them that we have 10 weeks. So <laughs> starting from nothing, uh, I had to get all my drawings in order and I had to convince people to make this for me, to build it for me. It's extremely complex and no one firm could take it all on. So even with the steel, we had three different firms all doing major work and they had to talk to each other and everybody, you know, quite rightly, jealously guards their uh, area. So building the team like that, and from a project manager point of view, me keeping, me watching everything so a day couldn't slip, so an hour couldn't slip. It is complex, it's the biggest thing you know, that I've certainly ever done, maybe the biggest thing I ever will do. But there's been a great energy that's gone with it, just a great feeling of goodwill towards it. And not because of what it's been built for, because most of the lads working on it, you know, really don't care one way or the other Mm. about the coronation. It's just what we were building has struck a chord. Mm. And... When people go in to see it, it's just wide-eyed delight. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's just wonderful. It's, and, and Camille, do you think that King Charles is going to pay a visit and have a look for himself? <laughs> Will you be on hand? Well, I've, had a, I've had a letter. <laughs> oh, you've had a letter. Okay, do you want I've to share the contents what? with the listeners of the home show? Well, just watch this place, I think, is the only thing I could say there. Okay, and of course he's one. He's a big one for the old nature and the wildflowers and all that. So he'll he be is. checking behind you, making sure you've done a good job. He is, but I tell you, he'll know because he knows how cool it's been this spring. Every gardener knows. Yeah, it's been a cold spring, and that's the nice part about uh, this garden. Sinead. There's been. I've had all the topiaries from Belgium. I've had them all from Germany. I have huge plants. I've had all the cranes planted them. But there's also been that real gardening, that thing that we want people to go out mm. to. Sprinkle that seed, uh, that wildflower mix. Our wildflower came from connected to nature down in Kilkenny. Uh, and important in this particular area that we use not the very showy wildflower, the stuff that came from the annuals and perennials that came from, from this island. Mm. So uh, it's real gardening. And if there is a, uh, a big visit, he'll know why it's slow. And I suppose, I mean, that's the essential feature, really, because you said that this was a bowling green before and you wouldn't have had yeah. a bee or an insect or anything Nothing. interested in a bowling green. And you're going to see through this structure, without all the kind yeah. of palaver and the ceremonial yeah. stuff, actually a return to nature, which is what I presume you're hoping for in pollination. Oh, it's amazing because we've done it right through the spring. And the, the, the reason I picked this spot for the uh, the construction was, were bordered by trees. So all those birds were already living there, waiting to get their hands in our garden. So it's a whole ecosystem. We mm. do have the butterflies, we do have the bees, we have everything straight away. The soil was actually really bad. We were surprised because it was a bowling green. 
when we dug into it, it was awful. So we've improved everything. Yeah. All our perennials came from Kilmurray in Wexford. They grow them in peach-free compost. Uh, all the paving stuff that were there on the perimeter were crushed and made into the hard core. The restaurant, the, the bowling pavilion that was there was the ugliest building in the world. It's still there, but with the skies behind these magical Harry Potter type trees. And when that opens as a really interesting restaurant later in the summer and coffee shop, uh, we'll make use without destroying everything and we'll build on what was there. Indeed. And now it's a permanent fixture so people will be able to go and visit it. Uh, but for now, where can they see images of it? And when do you think, is it opening from this weekend? Yes. So, it, no, it just opens for a previous uh, a Saturday. So from 10 to 4, uh, it can be seen. Then we'll close it down. And at the end of May, I think maybe the 26th of May, it'll open for good. And then it's open seven days a week. Right. Uh, okay. Because that's the nature of this this particular park. Indeed. From 6am till 11pm and it's just glorious. And people can, it'll just be an added feature I suppose for people even travelling to Belfast or uh, that that they can go and have a look at. Very much that. So if you want to take yourself away, it's all that pure imagination. It's all that um, uh, secret garden. We've closed the space down to a tiny, it's like going to an English country wedding in a churchyard you go in through raggedy old yew trees that were on the site close that then it opens up and then it opens up to something ridiculous but I hope fun (laughs) ridiculous it's certainly whimsical that's for sure now listen are we getting you back Dermot because you're you're, you've been practically living up there for the last while and uh, and what's next for you now in the real world well what's next for me is that next week to the same council, I present a plan for something else. And they're not going to know what they're doing. <laughs> oh my God, that sounds... Well, you've set them up now for <laughs> for silliness. So is that what you're telling me? They, they want well, to get used no, to it? the next one isn't silly, but it's big. And it's kind of... It's one of these things that you just look at and it's like, right... Whatever, it has to be built. Right. So I may be here for a while. You may be there for a while. All right. Well, listen, I hope that you will find time at some point during the summer to come down to us in the studio and uh, and we'll maybe do a summer series of of, uh, regular type gardens, just in case anybody out there thinks that you're going to be you know, putting in orbs and spinning trees into their back gardens. Dear McGavin, it has been a pleasure to talk to you and congratulations on the achievement. Thank you very much, Sinead. Now, my next guest is a furniture maker from Wicklow with over 40 years experience in woodwork and design. But his most striking piece is surely the boat chair. Based on an old design dating back to the 1830s, Brendan Lawless joins me in studio to chat about it. You're very welcome to the studio. Good morning, Sinead. Thanks for having me in. Now, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, describe this very special chair to us. The chair, okay. Well, it has four turned tapered legs and... They come through the seat. There's a wedge that secures the leg into the chair seat. You have three stays or posts. So you have two at the front and one to the rear. And then you have three very fine curved steam bent pieces of wood that's that come from the back to mm. the front. And it is those, that bent wood mm-hmm. frame 
that must make it, you know, it does make it very striking, but it must make it very comfortable as well. It's very good for supporting the back. A lot of people buy them, especially since a lot of are working from home. Um, they find the support is terrific. Mm, yeah. mm. And it's uh, rendered in, what type of wood do you use? I use ash, walnut uh, and red oak. Okay, yeah. so really sustainable pieces, Irish. I use some native. when I can get Irish timber, yeah. I'll use it. But generally speaking, I'll use a European ash or American walnut. Now, where did the idea uh, for this chair come from? Oh, it was back in 2006. I was at a show on the RDS. It was the Ideal Home Show. And I was chatting to a gentleman. He was selling some vernacular furniture. And I just saw the curved ribs. They were, the chair was covered with some blankets. And um, we took the chair out, had a look at it. And he described it as a famine chair. So I bought the chair from him with the intention of copying it as a <laughs> present for my wife. Right, OK. But the chair sat in the workshop for about two years. Um, when the recession came... It was the first time in my working career I had no work. 25 years, there was nothing to do. Mm. So I set about making a few chairs and I started going to some local craft markets Mm. and the chair went down extremely well, but it also generated a lot of work for me. Um, Previous customers that I had worked for in the past, people forget about you. They don't need Mm. you for several years. You Mm. do a wardrobe or a kitchen and then you're finished. So... It, um, it kind of, yeah, it, it gave me a lot of work. Um, the chair sold and, yeah, I just started making them then and going to market and I put them on Amazon. So I've shipped to America, Canada and the UK. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it's, so it's terrific. No, it's, it's lovely working on the chairs. Like, yeah. it's just, the pace is just so slow. I'm compelled to ask you, did your wife ever get her chair? She <laughs> did. Friend. She's she's received several chairs. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I have to take them back because I'd be short on orders and that. But yeah, currently yeah, a she, does, of a chair, she right. does have a chair currently. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, okay. Well, they say the cobblers have the worst shoes. <laughs> well, this is it, right, yeah. Okay. yeah well, uh, um, so, so that's where the idea of it came from. And you just found then you had both the time and the opportunity and the motive, I suppose, to, as they say, to commit the crime of making all these chairs. Um, and, and you're shipping them. How how do you do that? Is that does that not... Like, it's difficult. It's yeah, gone very expensive now at the moment. Yeah. yeah, It costs about 500 euros to ship a chair to the States. Goodness. So it's a little bit prohibitive. Um, hopefully the costs will come down mm. in the near future. But... At the moment, I'm just focusing on the home market. Right. OK. And um, has technology changed how you've worked over the years or do you still use the mm. oldest practices? I am still very basic woodworking techniques. Like there's steam bending involved. There's mortise and tenons. They're all traditional joints that have been used for hundreds of years, you know. And is that because that's what you prefer or because it's best for the Well, the it's just machines chair. can't do everything. They can do so much, but... I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all think we're going to be done out of a job, me included, with <laughs> AI and chat GPT and all of that, but none of that for you with the chairman. No, 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 I'm, I'm secure for the yeah. future. Yeah. Now, you mentioned there a lot of the native timbers and you said, when I can get them, I yeah. use them. Uh, do we have a shortage? Uh, is it uh, well, with the ash, there's a dieback disease, so there's, that's, yeah. that's not very available. Um, I would use elm and oak, um, but generally speaking, I will use the American timbers, mm-hmm. the European and is the whole thing of sustainability important? I mean, are customers increasingly looking for, um, you know, 
native woods or woods that, you know, will last the test of time rather than this kind of fast fashion of... Yeah, I think people are, they're more conscious of, of spending a little bit more on a, on a homemade product rather than going and buying, say, a plastic chair. Mm. Um, so in that sense, yeah, they're kind of And making the investment. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, the chair is popular, I know, uh, as a wedding gift because yeah. I've had a look at your website, but you have one in the range which is an interlocking one. And it perhaps gives the bridal couple a bit of a hint too. Yeah, there is that. Tell us about that. That kind of evolved. I, I wanted to have an alternative use for two chairs. So basically it's called the Baudin or the little boat. And that's two chairs facing one another. And then there's a wooden latch type hinge underneath, which is secured with a wooden peg. So you then fit your, your Moses basket. <laughs> So when you're finished with your Moses basket, <laughs> you unlatch it and you have your two chairs. Right. No yeah. pressure and on the couple. No, 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 <laughs> whatsoever. Okay. And they'll sit comfortably in, in a corner in a modern house or a traditional house. Like yeah. they're, they're quite contemporary looking for such an old They design. are. Mm. And that's really the point. When I, when I was looking at it, it actually looks like a very modern piece. But you've described it as a very ancient piece. Mm. But you, you definitely brought it into the Well, originally the they were a little century. more rustic in appearance and they were going to mm. paint it in an oxblood colour. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've refined it somewhat. And yeah, it's... That no, seems to be really popular. And you've brought in um, this certificate of authenticity. You you give this out with each of the chairs. I mean, it in itself is in this beautiful leather folder. Um, absolutely uh, gorgeous. Do people like getting this? Well, this kind of, well, when COVID happened um, and the lockdown, I was back to square one. I couldn't go out on site. I couldn't work. So I started, I kind of reimagined the chair mm. so I thought well I've been on a voyage for years so I said why should it be my voyage another alone? Brenton <laughs> exactly yes so I, I set about making the chairs as a, as a wedding gift and I call it the Gras so mm. because I had a Gras mm. for the chairs mm. I said yeah we'll call it the Gras package and that consists of two walnut chairs um, the certificate of authenticity uh, you get a copper disc which is inscribed and that's flush fitted into the back of the chair and then you get a you get a personalised um, gift card. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, now that's a very uh, extraordinary gift to give somebody, mm. and, and quite unique, really. So, what what would something like that cost then for for the Gras wedding package? Will cost nineteen hundred and fifty euros. Okay. And that's delivered anywhere in the country and, by myself. And as you said, these are heirloom pieces. Exactly. Really. There's something you'll have for generations. Pieces. You know. Oh, right. Okay. What's next for you, Brenton? Oh, well, more, I'm, more I'm chairs, or I'm will back, you be? Well, I'm kind of working on a on a guitar stool. Um, I'm back in gifted. I did gifted in December last, mm. and that was a very good show. So I'm back in again this December, but I want to launch a guitar stool, which is a four legged stool, and there's a quite a substantial seat on it, but there's a notch out of the back of the seat where the neck of the guitar will rest. Right. So that's okay. something we're working on. So we'll use walnut and ash, a combination of both. All right, fantastic. So. And you're not, uh, you're, you're going to stick at it for the while now. You, this is your blood. I can oh, no, tell by my, you, this is what you, this is who you are, <laughs> rather than what you do. Because the pace of working on the chairs is just lovely. It's very, yeah. it's quite mindful as well. Yeah. But yeah, it's where the workshop is where I want to be. All right. Well, OK. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your workshop to come in to us in the home show today. Where can people find out a little bit more about you and the chair? Uh, you can look at the website. It's it's uh, irishboatbuilderschair.com. Irishboatbuilderschair.com. Um, yeah, or just Google boatbuilderschair and I'll come up. And you'll come up. Yeah. Yeah. 
and you're, I'll get back to you're you. You're the, the master of it. And listen, folks, I do uh, encourage you to look it up. It's absolutely beautiful. The Irish Boat Builders Chair. And thank you uh, very much to its um, inventor and creative director, Brendan Lawless, <laughs> okay. who has joined us Thank you very much, Sinead. Pleasure. And we are sticking with the whole coronation theme and all the bling and the gold and the guilt and the pomp and the ceremony. Uh, and if it is your thing, well, then, of course, you will want a gilt throne and gold picture frames and lots of red velvet. Uh, so who better to advise us on blinging up our own palaces should the new king pop around for a cuppa than award-winning interior designer and author uh, Natasha Rocco-Devine. You're very welcome to the studio. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to be here as always, Sinead. Lovely to have you here. Um, so in terms of... <laughs> The bling, people love it and they like the bit of splash Absolutely. of something fabulous. I do, a little bit of it. Yeah. Yeah, I just actually, it's perfect timing to talk about this because I just designed a room for Ideal Homes called Family Looks Living and I think that's, I just, whether you have a family or not, I just want to let people know that you can keep looks in your life. It's just about how you do it and to what extent. In terms of the coronation, I think things like, um, you know, simple things, like we'll start with flower arrangements, for example. And I've worked with Doro.ie who does... Um, kind of fake faux flowers so not only can they last for the coronation weekend or for a week they can last and she has spray perfume that you put on it because I think in the royal family um, you see so much flower and luxury on all the yeah. tables and you see lot, these the gardens and everything overflowing dishes oh, of you know fantastic stuff and if you don't have your own florist or your own garden yeah, with absolutely. all the stuff in it uh, I'm a huge fan of the silk flowers like the big hydrangeas and stuff that you know you'd you'd spend an absolute fortune Fortune if you were trying to keep it up so yeah this is a way I didn't know there was a perfume to yeah well um, Samantha gave me the perfume for Idle Homes (laughs) and everyone was sniffing them everyone thought they were real I didn't want to like correct people I was like but yeah and it's also sustainable so that's I think you always see opulent flowers and then things like tablescaping so you see the um, the royal family and everything's all about dining and guests and it's just so luxurious and you see the gold finishes and they're going around with the ruler to make sure they're oh, all everything exactly, exactly the perfect. Yeah, no, that might be a step too far for the most of us, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> On a busy can, Friday evening cobbling together a chicken curry. Uh, absolutely. But I think places like, which are brilliant, um, Jisk are, is amazing, um, Home mm. Sense, TK Maxx, you know, just shops like that. A Dunce is gorgeous as well. Like there's just the, the list is endless, but it's, you know, the places like that where you can get gold, um, tablescaping and, ta- you know, just yeah. tableware for your home and just bling it up a little bit. So little touches like that are really simple. Yeah, but and actually there's, there's little things you can do. I think, um, you know, just to make the dinner table look a little bit out of the ordinary. Absolutely. And it, you know the way, it strikes me, you know the way in a bedroom we're told to put like 17 pillows all in oh, a yeah, row. And throws. But, and but the table thing is like having this platter and then a plate on it and then another, another plate, plate on, on it. it. Yeah, so all of that kind of, like I just think, as I said, each place, each of the shops I've mentioned are amazing, but it's literally layering up, exactly as you said, layering, instead of layering okay. the bed, layering okay. the table. And then in the centre you could have candles. I mean, we have so many gorgeous Irish candles, mm. La Bougie, um, um, it's just so many different brands that we could work with but I think just having um, and like candles um, and then there's you know there's overhanging there's new tips you know there's, if you look on Instagram and Pinterest amazing overhanging things that you can hang over a table it's not very royal but you know you in outside gardens you can hang lanterns like it's unbelievable mm. what you can do tablescaping is just the way mm. forward um, and I think uh, Tara O'Connor has a design table if you look at her stuff it's 
outrageous. It's so beautiful. You know, she does Easter, Easter themes and everything like that. So obviously this weekend it's going to be more gold and bling. And then just things like, you know, bringing in like more structurally statement wallpaper. You know, the royal family, Cole and Son is really famous there. But, you know, whether you have a local brand or, you know. And just, William Morris and, oh, uh, you and know, all, the, all of the so old beautiful. That's all. Ba- like William Morris, you're going back hundreds of years there. But that so kind of thing Absolutely. is. I've seen it in. I mean, you can go down to the Ivy here in Dublin, you'll see it in the loo. I mean, or up on the wall. Absolutely. And people love that kind of the peacocks and the birds of paradise and all that stuff. It's very royal family. You know, it's actually stemmed from that. People don't realise that. And then you can get linseed wallpaper now, which is sustainable. So you can paint over it. And that came from the royal family. I was speaking with a girl who, you know, works in a brand with that in the UK. And, you know, we we forget that this actually is coming from such a lineage of um, style. And I'm a wallpaper queen. So I love it on my show homes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when is too much, too much. Are you for wallpapering all the walls or just the feature pieces? I think for a family home, um, for the show homes I design, I usually just do a feature wall. Mm. Some bedrooms, I think, like you say, and small bathrooms, it's fantastic. Yeah. The downstairs, loo, all that, it looks amazing. But I think keep it, smaller spaces are better to wallpaper, but ironically. It, and actually, if you're going all out with wallpaper, yeah. it's not cheap. No, So if not. you're only doing one wall or a small space, really you can yeah, punt yeah. out for the absolutely for the good stuff. But we it. also have loads of brands online. You know, like we're our I think Ireland is becoming so stylish. Not that we ever weren't, but even more so. I think mm. very stylish. So I think we've a lot of brands coming. Um, I like to keep it local, but you know, online. So there's limitless. You can mm. go on the cheaper end, but like anything, it won't last as long. Um, and then just things like antiques. Like I'm very much into upcycling, vintage, sustainable design. So that's hugely royal-esque. Mm. You know, you can bring in, go to your local um, vintage stores or do you know, like there's places like salvage centres, you know, um, buildings that are kind of run mm. down or people pass away and they go and they sell them there so we're very lucky in Ireland there's a lot of beautiful places and charity shops people don't understand mm-hmm. if you go down kind of Camden Street and just different shops there's, there's actually furniture outside so bringing that into your home is a huge kind of um, looks element I think And do you think there's a movement back towards people having items that tell a story Absolutely. you know even if they don't know the story they Absolutely. can kind of say oh, yeah, this, this is reminds from me of an era, you know, of an era. Yeah. or whatever the era is Absolutely and I think that's the royal family whether you're in interested in them or not they have so much history and all of their pieces are decadent and coming back and even now I mean you go to a sales room you go to Adam or or any Herman Wilkinson any of those sales rooms this is a Georgian piece this is an Elizabethan piece this is a you know an Edwardian piece and that's all based on not you know because they were obviously <laughs> controlled Ireland at the same time but it's an era absolutely and yeah. and we still refer to it as yeah. that and it's why not and I think like our buildings as well Georgian but like we've such I'm obsessed with Irish architecture mm. I lived in America and I came back and I was like hugging buildings I was so happy to be home because we have such gorgeous history yeah. here yeah. whether or not you know regardless of where it stemmed from it's so beautiful so I think bringing that element of those furniture pieces in and also if you can support a local business or a charity mm. even better that's fantastic Low and loads talk to me about the podcast um, I've launched or I'm launching a podcast on June 8th called a Space to Grow and my first guests are Lorraine Keane and Lisa Cannon the first people well, that I've interviewed that's so fantastic we've I, had Lorraine in here she's a fantastic oh, she's guest she's amazing and, and she's very stylish and into interiors and the podcast is about their home life is it? the podcast is basically about our childhood homes and how it's created the spaces that we live in now and how space influences us in our lives in our work life so it's not just about interiors it's about space in general and our attitudes and mm. kind 
kind of feelings towards different spaces and design. So it's really interesting hearing different people's perspective on space. And then obviously we're encouraging people to share their space to grow within the studio. So it's really exciting. And, you know, you can tune in on Spotify and all different kind Fantastic. of Fantastic. All right. And of course, people can find you on Instagram then? Yeah, um, my name, Natasha Rocco Devine. So Fantastic. you can find me there. All right. Well, it's been wonderful to have you in. And thanks for joining us today with all those great tips. Thank you so much for having me. And that is all we have time for on the latest edition of the Home Show podcast. My thanks to Natasha and indeed all of our guests. And if there is a guest you'd like us to have on or a topic you'd like us to cover, well, then do get in touch with us. You can do that by emailing us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. You'll find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. I know lots of you like to get in touch after a listen to suggest th- things. And that is fantastic. And we love to hear from you. Eva Breen was producing today on Sound Stephen McLoon and Peter Malloy. And we will see you next time around Uh, so do check out uh, the podcast and check in with it regularly and we'll see you then The Home Show with Sinead Ryan With Colour Trend Paint On News Talk.